Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Rawa Aja. Rawa is an educator and creative writing teacher whose debut novel is The F Team. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording from home on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to those lands, stolen lands, unceded lands. Here on the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast, we're all about books, writing, and literary culture. And I want to help others discover great new Australian books. So, do you want to help me? If you give us a rating wherever you're listening to the show, or even leave a comment, it helps put our podcast in front of more eyes and book lovers. Now, today on the show, Tariq's got his life together. He's got his boys, the girls all love him, and school's a breeze. Well, except for that bit where the media says they're terrorists in training and the Department of Education is going to shut them down. But Tariq and his friends have a chance. They can play in a footy comp with some white boys from Cronulla. And if they actually become a team, well, well, if Tariq can pull all that off, his whole world might not implode. Join me as we discover Rawa Aja's The F Team. You are tuned in to 2SER 107.3. This is Final Draft. It is books, writing, and literary culture. My name is Andrew Popel, and I am joined on the line by Rawa Aja. Rawa is a teacher, and her debut novel is The F Team. Rawa, look, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you for having me. It's... um. It's a pleasure. We uh, we were chatting uh, off air before, and I confessed how much I love this book, and I want to give people a flavour of it. This is this is one of those books that I think people will begin by saying, "Look, it's it's YA. It's a young adult book, but it is something for everyone." Um, so Tariq, he's got his life together. He's got his boys. The girls all love him, and school's a breeze, uh, except for the bit where the media says uh, they're all terrorists in training, and the Department of Education is going to shut them down. But Tariq and his friends have a chance. They can play in a footy comp with some white boys from Cronulla and actually become a team. Now, if Tariq can pull all that off, his whole world might not implode. You have created an extraordinary ensemble piece here with the F team. And Tariq is... I think I think hopefully his character will come out. He's someone that you vacillate between how much you love and how much you want to just sort of slap him upside the head. Um, <laughs> so Tariq and his friends attend Punchbowl Boys High, and the school you depict it begins the story in disrepair with stressed and overworked but hopeful teachers. They're working with students who don't often see the point when the world insists on telling them that they are perhaps worse than nothing. You are a teacher. We mentioned that in the intro. I, I wondered how close do these depictions veer to the truth of the situation for many schools? Um, pretty much identical, actually. Um, some of the things that Tariq goes through and says, um, I only had the privilege of experiencing that because I also uh, mentor young boys from Punchbowl Boys as well. And so some of the things, and the principal, Robert, was is so incredible and so supportive um, you know, opened his doors to, to the school and he said, you know, these are the boys. I want you to see them for what they really are rather than what the outside world sort of labels them. And so I actually sat with them um, for a few weeks and I – actually a few months, sorry. And I got to witness exactly what they go through every single day. And I thought to myself, I'm from the area. I was born in Punchbowl. I went to school in Punchbowl. Um, 
and I went to university in Bankstown, so I've been in a bubble pretty much. And I couldn't believe um, that I still didn't know really what these young boys, even young girls also, were going through. This idea of feeling hopeless um, in a world that always depicts uh, minorities um, uh, or people of colour as second class. Like We always feel like we're second best. And that's pretty much a minority of the of our communities, the stuff that you see in the media. And I really wanted to bring to life the incredible people in my community, like the African proverb says, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And it really does. We're very close knit. You know, the butcher knows my father, the baker knows my mum. We're on first name basis. I get three bananas from the supermarket. And I thought to myself, why, why doesn't anybody know about this part of our community? And this is the real part of our community. And so Tarek really represents um, all those boys that I mentored, all those boys that I went uh, and taught. And I wanted to give them something that they're proud of and that if they pick up this book, that they feel safe and and understand that I am one of them. I come to them and I write this book as being equal, not an outsider, not through a lens where I look down upon them and try to dissect who they are and, you know, being a teenager. It's nothing got to do with that. It's just this is it and... And I wanted to celebrate you now. So let's jump straight to that idea of media depiction and the media landscape. I mean, we're we're talking on a radio station and we are, I, I am part of the media. And in the book, we see how media depictions can be particularly one-sided and in fact there is a moment in the book where the boys are challenged to to take that on to start to tell their own story by you know people are leaking videos of the boys fighting uh so they need to create their own as um as it's explained to them by the principal uh, their own positive optics but are are any of those ever holistic and i mean the f team is a fantastic opportunity for us to get a bigger story but i mean how else are we going to be exposed to that bigger story that's you know that's true but you know what it is I'll, uh, for a very long time um uh just a quick backstory i i never read as a kid and i never i didn't like it if somebody said i was going to be a writer i think they were crazy but um when i was 12 years old september 11 happened and being 12 or 13 is hard enough as it is because you're going to the teenagers, let alone having the whole world now um, has you guilty by association. And so for a long time, I felt suffocated. And then Cronulla riots happened. And then it just felt like I couldn't speak. I couldn't really tell my voice, uh, sorry, use my voice. And so in terms of it being holistic, it's because we, people of color and minorities always felt like we couldn't uh, use our voice. And so... Um, I really wanted this book to be uh, a book that celebrates diversity and a book that actually depicts what actually is going on from our perspective. You know, the media has a side, and it's not to say that we're completely innocent and we're perfect, of course not, but I feel like the the light shines a little bit brighter on, you know, communities, uh, minorities and people of colour than those that are not. And so if that is the case, then why not take back the narrative? Why not take back the power? I don't feel like I owe anybody anything. I think it's rather just taking ownership now of the of my voice and just feeling proud to say, you know what, the media might say this, but hang on a sec, I'm actually going to challenge it because I'm the only one that can challenge it. The people of colour, minorities are the only people that can challenge it. Um, and I don't want to stay in the shadows anymore. I, I want to tell my story. I feel comfortable enough now to tell you know, our story. So the boys are faced with the 
the closing down of their school. Their school is is branded as almost irredeemable. And one of the lights at the end of their tunnel is a new principal, Mr. Archie, who gets them involved in a football comp. But the boys have to team up with another group of boys from a Cronulla High School. And there is there is so much that is amazing in these interactions. But I want to really sort of focus in on the relationship between Tarek and Aaron, who who begins the story as a very much love to hate type of character. And there are there are several sort of very grass is greener type moments for Tarek and Aaron where Tarek sees Aaron's house, Aaron sees Tarek's family life. I wondered how did you negotiate and what did you want to explore as you looked at these different parts of Sydney for Tarek moving into Aaron's world and Aaron moving into Tarek's? Um, I, I sort of drew it on personal experience. Um, I had a, I have, I'm very fortunate. I have friends from all over the world, um, but sometimes my, and I say this in a really nice way, my white friends sort of don't understand that an Arab Muslim girl has to have plan A to Z if she goes to an outside area. So I'll give you an example. I went to a footy game and it was um, St. George, I think, or Cronulla versus the Bulldogs. And I went with my white friends. And we sat down and we sat down in the, audio, in the crowd and there were these men behind me that were really tall, masculine, you know, beer drinking, tattoos. And I thought, I did the same thing that, that I didn't like people doing to me and my people. I stereotyped them and I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be traumatic. They're going to, you know, say something to me because I'm visibly Muslim. I have the veil on. And five minutes into the game, you know, the Bulldogs scored and they jumped up and I jumped up. And it turns out we went for the same team. And I thought to myself, isn't it amazing that when I sat down and I watched this game, that nobody asked me about my religion, nobody asked me about politics, I could actually just enjoy the game. And by the end of it, we actually became best friends. So, you know, a lot of beer was spilled on me. <laughs> but <laughs> the point what I'm trying to make is if you see people in their environment and go and actually put a face to a name, all of that tends to disappear if you want to learn and grow. So that's why I really wanted to explore the different world because it hasn't been done before. I mean, we had a traumatic incident in 2005 when we had Cronulla riots and these kids would have been just born, right? That, that, this was like 15 years ago, this year. And so I, everything that they know is based on bias from either their own communities. So, you know, the, a lot of these Arab kids only know what their brothers told them and what their brothers experienced or what their uncles or fathers you know, and vice versa, Cronulla, those kids will only know what their community has told them. And said, and I thought to myself, well, hang on a sec, it's very biased both ways. What if we just bring these communities together and, and strip away all that? What will actually happen? And so the F team takes these, takes Serena on a journey through brotherhood and through teamwork and through journey. And at the end of the day or at the end of the book, you realize that all these kids are experiencing the same thing. It doesn't, it doesn't mean like Cronulla, a boy from Cronulla is only going to experience particular um, issues in his life or boys from Punchbowl. No, at the end of the day, they all go, it's hard being a teenager. And so I wanted to strip away a lot of that and sort of have fun with what happens when, you know, enemy territories, so to speak, meet and what, what will happen if they have to bond over sport. You very much also, uh, I found, explored those ideas in the microcosm with relationships within the team. The idea that both of the both of the Punchbowl boys and the Cronulla boys immediately visually stereotype each other, but then within relationships, and particularly within that best friend relationship between Tariq and Huss, yeah. where they both um, 
again, I'm, I, I feel like I keep keep using this phrase, but you just want to sort of slap them in the head and say, boys, wake up to yourselves, because they both look at each other and make assumptions but fail, fail so utterly to openly communicate these things. Um, and that, that journey of them learning that assumptions only get you so far and communication must be mutual is, is, is really, you know, it's quite wonderful to watch. Yeah. I, well, you know what? Uh, honestly, this shocked me as well, again, being from the community, um, because I, I honestly would sit down with these kids and the same thing, feel like, oh, my God, I just want to slap these kids over their head. How can they not see but then once you mentor these boys and once you sit with them and actually sort of not in a in a not in a judgy way, I just kind of sat myself and I immersed myself in that culture. It's they honestly have no skills and they have no idea how to communicate. So for me, that's older, I can quite easily look at many relationships in those schools and go, hang on, how can you not see that this is wrong? Or you know that they actually don't know. Like they've actually said to me, I want to do well. I really want to do something with my life. But two things. Either one, they just feel as though academically, emotionally, that emotional intelligence they do not have because they come from broken families. It's not. That's what I really want to explore. Like it's so easy to look at somebody and go, oh, yeah, you know, you've thrown a chair, for example, a kid. But it's it's not that. If you really look into it, you know, his mum, his dad, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, violence. And et cetera, that these kids are experiencing. And so I really wanted to bring a human level to that and go, you know what? It's, it's, I don't want to say this, but it's almost easier said than done. Like mm. it's very easy to tell a child, hey, you know, you maybe don't throw a chair if you're angry. Um, but they don't know anything else. That's all they've seen for some of these kids. So I wanted to, to show that and say, yes, wow, that's a component in a lot of these boys' lives. But hang on a sec, look at all the steps that have led to this kid being this way. And so I wanted to strip back, which is why I put Mr. Archie and another character called Mr. Black um, as good role models because it's actually hard to find male role models um, within the community that, that, or my community that these boys look up to. Let's go into that too, because I mean, like you absolutely floored me, and you had me doing so much soul searching. Because m- much as you just expressed there, my my immediate reaction was, "Come on, guys, there is a better way to do this." And and I had to look back and say, "But but was there, Andrew? Like when I was when I was a teenager, did I have these these skills, this emotional intelligence that you were just talking about uh, as a teenager?" And I I can't honestly say that that I did. Now within Tarek's story. He very much follows, I guess, what we could see superficially as the hero's quest. He, he, he begins from adversity. He has mentors. He has to get to a, a goal, which is, well, we assume to win the footy comp. Um, the exception, though, seems to be that he must really kind of defeat his own behaviours and his attitudes. And many of these are things that are fostered within within his group. And I wondered then, how do those patriarchal ideals of, of what a man does, or perhaps what a man doesn't do in terms of communication and showing emotions, how do those patriarchal ideals influence and hold back young men? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I, so I grew up um, with my, my father, actually the male of the householder, so to speak, telling me that I need to get education, that I need to you know, be financially independent as a woman, that I need to find my way and my, like, I, like I said, I'm one of seven, and my father really instilled that in us. And I, like I said before, I grew up in a bubble. I thought that was normal. 
until I stepped outside and, I, and I've seen, you know, it's very common in the Arab culture, that patriarchal sort of system, it's there. And so, but it, it didn't exist in my world. And, and again, that's with me breaking stereotypes within the culture as well, that a female has to have a degree. Not has to, my father, you know, believes in happiness above all else, but truly believes in breaking those stereotypes as well. And with these boys, they don't have that. And so what I wanted to do is create characters that if that kid picks up that book, you know, and doesn't have it in his within his own family when he picks up that book at night and wants to read the F team, but he has characters like Mr. Archie that he could turn to or Mr. Black or and I put actually my father in it. So the character Mustafa who plays Tarek's father is actually based on my father. Um and I wanted to have my father as a mentor because within our community in real life, like everybody turns to my dad for advice as well. But I, I wanted to create some sort of connection or some sort of pathway to people who break all those stereotypes and break all those ideals because that's all these boys know. But I wanted to challenge the narrative and say, hang on a sec, you've you've only dealt with anger in unhealthy ways. But I'm not going to suppress your anger. Rather, I'm going to tell you ways to deal with it. And like I said before, these kids don't have the skills, um, the communication skills, the emotional intelligence to deal with so many heavy issues, let alone the world telling them as a Muslim kid, you're always going to be a murderer, you're always going to be a terrorist. Half the time you can't even turn on the TV without feeling like you're guilty by association. If a terrorist attack happens overseas, you can't mourn. People make you feel like you can't even mourn something because somehow you caused it, even though you were halfway across the world. So I wanted them to feel safe, that it's okay sometimes to feel angry, but these are the better ways to deal with it. First of all, I wanted to say how much I love Tarek's father in the book. His <laughs> his patience, his patience and his resilience, and just the way he deals with things. Your father must be a wonderful man. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to take up what you were saying there about having ways to deal with things, and I was really interested in uh, the idea of poetry, poetry as as a communication style, but also in particular the Bankstown Poetry Slam that becomes mm. a feature. It almost becomes a counterpoint to the footy comp in the narrative. And early yep. in the journey, as the F team are coming together, they are, I guess, cautioned um, by Mr. Black that words can have a big impact. Um, this is in relation to the way that they're interacting with each other. But I wondered then how important this message is for the lives of adolescents these days as they communicate. Yeah, no, I think it's the, that's why I focus on it so much because the idea of words and then that's why I put the poetry down because it's, it's the way you deliver that message. And you're right, I wanted to have that, you know, football team, that masculinity there, but also counter that with poetry and break that stereotype and that's how they learn to communicate. I, I grew up in a community and it's not all of all of the boys, you know, but a lot of the boys sort of they think it's a joke. So if they insult somebody and cross lines, they think, Oh, but I didn't mean anything and so you have to sort of re educate and retrain these kids and say, But it's not about you and it's not about how you feel. Rather, let's look at, you know, the person that you spoke to in that manner. How do they feel? That's, that's what is, it doesn't matter that you don't feel like you hurt someone, but the problem is you actually did. So it's not, you know, as, as teachers, you know, I used to have kids come up to me and say, oh, miss, I just said, you know, you're an idiot. And I say to them, okay, 
let's look at words. I want you to take out that word just and now repeat the sentence to me. And they say, okay, I called him an idiot. But they see the difference. It's, it's, you cannot live your life, you know, treading on other people's feelings because once those words leave your mouth, you cannot get them back as hard as you try. And I always tell these boys that I mentor, even the young girls as well, that the, the effect you have on somebody when they're 15 and 16 or 17 can last, honestly, lifetimes. I know people that were bullied um, 15 or 16 in a jokey, so to speak, manner. And when they're 30, it's affected how in their relationships, it's affected how they get a job, it's affected their family because they've just felt as though they're not good enough. And I, I always tell people, you don't want to live your life being that person that made somebody question themselves, made somebody question whether they want to come to school. Like, don't be that person. We have enough of those people. We're better than that. Let's move forward. So let's watch what we actually say. And I guess the flip of that is also true. Powerful words can have a powerful impact. And in the F team, you have created thousands and thousands of words that have created, I I guess, this idea of community that people can explore and access. But you've also created a very real community. This is so much grounded in in the area that you write about. So much so, you have members of the actual community appearing as characters. Um, Hazamel Masri, the great a great goal kicker for uh, for the Bulldogs, uh, mentors the F team. Uh, Sarah Mansour encourages Tariq at Bankstown Poetry Slam. She's one of the founders of Bankstown Poetry Slam. I wondered how did you go about including these? I'm going to call them real fictions. Were yeah. were they involved in the project? Did you talk to them? Did you ask them? Um, and the, yeah, I definitely asked them, um, but not. I pretty much did it, and then I was like, "Hey," because I know them personally. Mm. Um, and like I said, I wanted a lot of these. Everybody knows Hasmal Masri, um, but if you're not in the arts world, you won't know Sarah Mantle. Um, but she's an extraordinary mentor and a great role model as well, um, who's a trailblazer. I, I, I respect her immensely. And so, pretty much, I had a list um, before I wrote this book, and I said, "These are the people that I feel." Um, as though that these young kids should look up to. I don't want them to look up to Justin Bieber, <laughs> no offense to his music or anything, but you can ask these kids about any rapper, they'll tell you, but those who, you know, are doing actually the groundwork in their own community, um, you know, behind the scenes, they're paving the way for these teenagers. I, I feel as though credit should go to these people, not that they ask me, not that they will ever um, want that sort of credit, but like I said, I want to, I want this book to be as real as possible. And these are the people that have made our community, you know, so much better. And there's so many more that I could have mentioned, you know, that I didn't. Hopefully there's a sequel to this book and I'll I'll mention them there. But like, again, if these boys don't have these mentors or don't know about them, I want them to be accessible because that was the issue I had as as a teenager. I felt like I couldn't turn to anyone because nobody was accessible right like but social media has broken a lot of that and I get so many messages from kids you know and I respond to them and they they get so excited that I respond um so I wanted to create accessibility to to people who are you know extraordinary to say the least in our community I think you've done that I loved I loved those touches I want to assure you, I, I think this is this on final draft. It is probably a safe space, though, to criticise Justin Bieber's music. Um, <laughs> we can definitely point people to uh, to some amazing Australian artists if they want to, you know, get along with things. 
I wondered I wondered there then as the um as the story evolves as we see this very real crisis that the teams must go up against we also have the characters and I'm I'm going to continue to pick on um Tariq but I think we can equally <laughs> discuss uh this in terms of Huss and and Aaron they are all incredibly complex they are all at times far from innocent, they do things. I mean, Tariq especially, the, the words that comes out of his mouth, I mean, I know he's a 16-year-old boy, but as, as mm. we're dealing with these ways that they, the boys can be incredibly selfish, we also have to confront these, very, these are very real aspects of human behaviour and we want to pin our hopes on these guys. We want them to be our heroes. How important was for you then, and I'm thinking of the character of Hunter, for you to create an unambiguous villain for the story? How important was it to have someone that you could just sort of go, oh, that guy? <laughs> because I've dealt with hunters before in my life. And so, um, see, I sort of don't want to give too much away, but the idea of, um, you know, Tarek, the way even he speaks to his sister, um, the way these boys deal with women is something that I really wanted to bring to surface because, again, having these conversations with these boys, it's like, again, they feel it's okay to speak to, to women that way. And so... I really wanted to shed light on ways to, to, to respect all people, but let alone women. Like, you're a 16-year-old boy, Tarek, who speaks to his sister who's, twi- you know, twice his age and, and feels as though he has that autonomy over her and that power of struggle and relationship. And he says some horrible things about her for her being older in age and not married. Um, and he says some horrible things, and I've seen that. I've actually witnessed that. And so for me, it's always been like a silent writer when I watch these interactions. Not so much being a stalker, but like if I can't help but being a teacher, it's in my blood to, to, I need people to get lessons out of this book. Um, and Hunter was a very important character. And Hunter was actually someone that I actually struggled with to write because, you know, I deal with hunters on isolated situations. I don't have them in my life. Um, and I don't have to deal with them on a day-to-day basis. Yet these kids, because there's a lot of, you know, cross-communication with other schools, have to deal with, with hunters. And hunters in the Arab world too. It's not just a hunter in a, in the, um, in the Cronulla world. It's, there's also hunters in the Arab world, which I feel like Huss and Hunter are pretty much, you know, at the beginning are pretty much the villains of both communities. Mm. And so, Hunter for me really represents. I sort of went through a few redrafts of this character, and I didn't want anything. I didn't want everything to be so stereotypical. But at the same time, these things actually happen. And I've been what Hunter says and the words he uses and actions that have taken place. I've actually witnessed that. Um, and so he was somebody that I wanted to put in and. And you, I guess when people read the book, they go on the journey with him too. But his journey is sort of not finished at the end. Um, mm. And so that's what happens sometimes in life. Not everybody shakes hands at the end. It, that doesn't work that way. And so, yeah, and I think I think a lot of you know people will learn from the character of Hunter as well. It's interesting that you say there that you didn't want Hunter to in any way be stereotypical. But just to just to give a little bit more context around Hunter, he is. He is someone who, by by virtue of his birth and 
where his family sort of sits in his community has a lot of power. So he sits and he sits very comfortably with his power and, and tends to leverage it and tends to abuse it. And I don't, I think anyone who's met a hunter type knows that there's nothing original about them. People that abuse mm. power tend to do it in the same way. So as much as you would try to avoid stereotype, these people are stereotypes of themselves. I do want to, I don't want to give more time to Hunter though, because there is another char- character that I, I don't want to miss out on. And it strikes me that so much that we've discussed also hinges around ideas of male fragility. A lot of the ways the boys act and react comes from a sense of fragility that they're going to be called out. They're going to be shamed. Their respect or face is going to be lost. And Jamila is just an incredible character in the way that she is able to stand on her own and call out Tarek. And there's a fantastic moment where she, she absolutely shuts him down and points out that his behaviour is all around, not because of something she has done other than maintain her own self-respect. Yep. Please go go for it. I want to hear more about Jamila. <laughs> Jamila was actually, yeah, she was so much, like she was a ball to write. It was so much fun. Um, because, again, from real experiences, I see a lot of these young girls give in to those, characters, to those boys like Tarek. <laughs> Um, and pretty much, you know, are wooed by anything he does. And I was just, and being, you know, older and I watch these teenage girls, I'm like, oh my God, this is so cringy. Like, you can do so much better. I don't know why you accept that type of behavior. And she really is the first character to come along, or the first girl. Um, and she ends up being obviously a love interest, not to give too much away, but um, she's the first one that challenges him. And I really wanted to. I didn't want to make it her job to fix him because he needed to do that on his own. But I really wanted her to put some spanners in the work, and, you know, and make him really work for her respect first and foremost before anything could go forward. And she challenges him in ways that um, most of these boys won't know how to deal with. Like if a girl pretty much, you know, stands on her own two feet, doesn't need anything or anyone, is very strong and she's empowered and, and I love the relationship that she has with another character called Mariam. And she seems quite, not to give too much away, but she seems quite stereotypical with the hair and the makeup and, you know, the social media. But that they don't fight, that the women in this in this book particularly do not fight because it's common in young adult um, uh, literature to have, you know, there's always going to be two girls that fight over that boy. And I just, just I hate that. So I was like, no, they're not going to fight over Tarek. Rather, Tarek has to fight to earn both their respect. Um, and so I love the relationship that she has with the other girls in the book. And it's one of empowerment, one of, you know, even though you're different to me, I'm not going to put you down. And she's a character that I also wanted the girls, you know, if they read this book, um, to, to go, wow, I want to be like a Jamila. I, there should be more Jamilas in the world, you know. And, and I wanted the boys to understand that when they read this book, that they, they should watch what they say around women who know their worth. Because... They're not going to get away with things that they have in the past. I, I absolutely love Jamila as a character too, and I'm so glad we got to talk to to talk about her at the beginning. I I described the F team as a wonderful ensemble novel, and we have given a, a lot of time to Tarek, but I feel very confident in my assessment because even just taking the example of Mariam, there you you begin her, as you say, there is a a temptation that we could see her as a stereotype of a particular type of person. 
and then she grows. And the only reason we saw her that way was because our point of view was Tarek's point of view. And as soon as we were allowed to see her as herself, we understood. And, that, and that's one of the, the, the incredible things that the F team does. There are a good dozen, uh, probably 20 characters that I don't know how you do it, but in, somehow you have given <laughs> them all arcs and, and growth. It's absolutely fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Very, very hard. <laughs> it took four years to do, but like I can't explain to people, and I don't know if I, I can say this without sounding a, a tad arrogant. I don't know, but I love my characters. Like I, when I was writing them, and you know, there was there was a few edits to go back and forth with this, this manuscript. I, anytime I had to revisit those characters, like I was just like I was in awe. I loved them. I was like because they were based on real people, and I loved that a lot of this book was chat. Even though it was so stereotypical, but it was challenging stereotypes as well. And it was just, you know, it was, I don't know, I just, I really enjoyed the process. So sometimes I cried. <laughs> I don't, well, I mean, I'm telling you, I don't blame you. I, I, I cried a little bit too for, for our characters as they, as they grew. And look, I'm speaking, I'm speaking with Rawa Aja. Her debut novel is The F Team. It is a cliche of YA that we end up saying this is a young adult novel that is for so much more than young adults and I would encourage anyone to read it but buy two copies one for a young adult in your life Rawa thank you so much for taking time on Final Draft oh no thank you so much my pleasure that's it for this great conversation with Rawa Aja Rawa's debut novel is The F Team and it's out now through Giramondo Publishing Great Conversations is broadcast from Gadigal Land and recorded on Darug and Gundungurra Land uh, in 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia. Uh, the show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with us, uh, the latest in books, writing and literary culture, we are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. You can click subscribe in your podcast app and it means there will be a new great conversation for you every week. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. And until then, wish you happy reading.